Thank you so much, Snodderly family. It's always a beautiful thing to see a family singing together, isn't it? We praise the Lord for their ministry. Please take your Bibles with me this morning. Let's turn to the Gospel of Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew chapter 10. Let's turn there in God's Word together as we continue our study looking at the Gospel of Matthew and specifically looking at the call of discipleship as Jesus loves to talk and love to teach on what true discipleship is. Here we're specifically calling our study in the text the meaning of discipleship. There's a number of titles we could give to this passage. The cost of discipleship is one that we've looked at already in the Gospel of Matthew with that title and that theme. And if you're wondering why we return to the theme so often about discipleship, the answer to that is because Jesus teaches so often on it. Jesus teaches a lot about what it looks like to be a Christian, what it looks like to follow him. Uh, one time I was having a conversation with a lady who had visited the church, and she had some things that she wanted to say. She was not a believer. She was in a cult. So we began to have a gospel conversation, and it was a hard, I don't say this mockingly, it was a hard thing for her to wrap her mind around the things that I was saying, but the things that I was saying was what Jesus was saying. And so she was saying, well, that's not the Jesus I know. Once I told her when I said, well, that's, what, that's not what I'm saying. This is what Jesus is saying. And then her response was, well, that's just not the Jesus that I know. That, that was a, certainly a true statement, no doubt about it. If you're wondering why we're spending so much time talking about what the, this issue of discipleship, again, the, the reason is it's one of Jesus' favorite subjects. And throughout the Gospels, we see different portraits, different aspects, different vignettes of his teaching on this, on this topic of discipleship. So find our place in the Word of God, Matthew chapter 10, and look with me beginning in verse... 32. And we'll lay the groundwork in our minds this morning and then we'll go back through the text. Matthew chapter 10, beginning in verse 32, Jesus says, Therefore, whoever confesses me before men, him I also will confess before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, him I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be those of his own household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me, is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who finds his life will lose it, and he who loses his life for my sake will find it. Well, this is the word of God. In his book, Ten Things I Wish Jesus Never Said, Victor Cooligan wrote this. In his preface, he writes, With the rise of the health and wealth gospel and with prosperity preaching, we have become accustomed to a comfortable, quote, what a friend we have in Jesus, Messiah. It is a picture of Jesus, and he says this, that I call Jesus light, L-I-T-E. Great taste, less demanding. Jesus is interested in my happiness and nothing more. 
He wants me to be financially comfortable, physically fit, mentally and emotionally stable. He never demands of me anything that would cause these basic goals to be missed. Difficulties, trials, and hardships in my life are only there because maybe of a lack of faith on my part to believe that Jesus truly wants me to be happy. Then he goes on to say this. He says, The teaching of Jesus was often blunt and harsh. Jesus was not a preacher of convenience, but hardship. Not a preacher of comfort, but of suffering. End quote. Well, certainly there is a category that we're finding as we study through the Gospel of Matthew that theologians like to call, and the church and the life of the church likes to call, the hard sayings of Jesus. Now, why would we say that? Well, the answer is, is they are truly hard. They are truly difficult to hear. They're difficult to process, depending on different cultures and environments. But they are the blunt, no holes barred, the sharp edges are not rubbed off, if you will. They are pointed to us. They, are, they speak to us right to the very soul of our being about what a disciple is. And as we saw last week, Jesus will never be accused of a bait and switch, will he? Oftentimes, we as pastors can legitimately be accused of a bait and switch. We have a fear of man. We have a fear of people. We so want people to be okay. Pastors have no delight in dealing with sheep that are upset. Pastors do not delight with problems and, and, and messes and those types of things. But that is not to be our number one fear as shepherds, is it? But yet for many pastors, it is. And because of that, they don't want problems. And so part of their problem is to minimize the blunt sayings, the blunt teachings of Jesus. Well, the thing is, Jesus will never be accused of minimizing his message, of watering down his message. And we are right in the middle here in Matthew chapter 10 of one of those passages where we could say, truly, this is a passage where the hard sayings of Jesus are present as he's teaching his disciples then and us by extension today what it means to truly follow Jesus. Here Jesus gets at the heart of what a disciple is, what a disciple looks like, and what that disciple's life looks like once it is given to him. What Jesus wants us to know right here in Matthew chapter 10 is that if we would live and follow him, we must die first. We must die if we would live is another way of saying it. We must give up if we would gain. We must sacrifice if we would succeed. We must take his cup of suffering if we desire the crown that he will give one day. There are none who wear a crown in heaven who did not first bear their cross in the here and now, as they live for Jesus as a disciple of Jesus Christ. And notice again, this is not the fine print. This is not shouting over here and whispering over here. Jesus makes it very clear what life looks like to be his disciple. Now last week, if we go back to verse 24 in chapter 10, if you'll just put your eyes on the text, as we just kind of lay flow of this continual teaching of Jesus, just to lay a little bit of background, with many people present here today who were not present last week, and just to show you that this is a middle of a portion of what Jesus is teaching. Last week we saw that a disciple imitates his teacher in verses 24 and 25. Notice what Jesus says there. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough that he be like his teacher and a servant like 
his master. So in other words, if you would desire to be a disciple of Jesus, then study the life of Christ. And friend, your life will be no different than his life. If you proclaim the name of Christ, know this, Jesus says, people will betray you just like they betrayed me. If you live faithful to the cause of Jesus, the world will hate you, not because you have a martyr's complex and not that you're looking for suffering. It's not like you desire these things. But if you do this because of me, because I am your master, the world will persecute you as well. Because Jesus himself was betrayed, hated, and persecuted. The reality that we must face is this, that the danger in our lives happens as we are increasingly obedient to the call of Christ, to the truth of Christ, there is a cost to pay. One of the things we often struggle with, we've been struggling with in our church, is why do you and I face so little a cost? If this is what Jesus says, that that we're not above our master, then why is it that you and I experience very little suffering, very little persecution, Very little castigation, and there's many answers to that, but hopefully the answer to that question is not the fact that we're silent or the fact that we are not faithful to Christ. So the first thing we saw is a disciple imitates his master. Then we saw that a disciple fears God more than any other fear in the world, verse 28, where Jesus tells his disciples, do not fear those who can hurt the body or kill the body, but they cannot kill, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body, in hell. Three times in verses 26 to 31, Jesus uses the words that actually is one of the most common refrains in all of Scripture, do not fear, do not fear, do not fear. Because we are certainly prone to fear, aren't we? Sheep, we are sheep, and we are prone to fear. And fear controls. Fear is like a snare, Proverbs 29, verse 25 is, says, where the fear of man brings a, a trap. It brings a snare. So as Jesus is commissioning his disciples, preparing his disciples, and speaking to us today, this is what he says. In all of your fears, fear me above all. And what you will find is the fear of me solves every other fear. And that's what we find. A disciple will be vindicated by God ultimately. We see that in verses 26 and 27. He says simply, teach my message. Speak the words that I give to you with holy boldness. You leave the results to me. I will give you the words to speak. I will give you the grace that will be sufficient for you in the hour of trial. But fear me above earthly fears, above diseases, above magistrates, and above family that will betray you, above civil courts, above all those things. Who you need to fear is not a fine. What you need to fear is me. Now, friends, If you're aware of anything that's going on in the world today, one thing you will be aware of is that for others, maybe not for us as much, but for others there is a cost. We talked about the example where Jesus says, I send you out as wolves, uh, the acquaintance that a few of us have who was shot to death in the Middle East simply because he was faithful to Christ. Then this past week I was made aware of a, a pastor in Texas who is beginning a church in his home, and he's been notified by the local officials that they can not do that anymore. According to their local codes and whatever, not codes, but just it, there's not a real clear reason, but according to their local ruling, that is not allowed. Other things are allowed of such nature, clubs and groupings and all types of things, but they've been notified that is not allowed, and they've notified the authorities that, well, they're not going to budge. 
They're planning a local church. They have a free conscience, and they don't feel like they're violating the law in any way. So there may be fines that come their way or imprisonment that comes their way. We've experienced in the life of the American church and the Canadian church and the church around the world for some of the first times in our lifetimes where we're being told, you can't do that. And, and growing up in my life, I've always heard this. Follow and obey your civil authorities and the scriptures that teach that. But for the first time, we're getting a taste of when those two things are not in alignment. When we must fear God more than we fear men or fear fines or fear imprisonment. So again, not to, to bang the, the bell, but friends, you can't touch on that too much because we will find out what Jesus tells us this morning, who we really are when that moment comes. If we're those who simply cave, we'll find out a lot about our profession that we say we have. Last week, the last thing we saw in verses 29 to 31 is the care that Jesus provides and gives, the comprehensive knowledge that he has of his creatures and his disciples his providential care, and to know that God will take care of us in the same way he takes care of the sparrows. He knows the very hairs on our head so we can know that he knows the details of our life. This morning, as we look at our text beginning in verse 32, number one, I want us to see this point. A true disciple publicly confesses Christ as Lord. This is what Jesus says. A disciple is not above his master. Again, what we saw last week. When Jesus came, he made clear what his ministry and mission was. He was the Son of God being sent by the Father. Here, Jesus makes clear and known who he is and what his aim and what his mission is. In the same way, true disciples are not afraid to publicly confess Christ as Lord. Now, on the surface level, that sounds like a, yeah, no, duh. We, we all know that. But let's consider it a little more deeply. And may the Holy Spirit help us to apply it to our hearts this morning. Where you're not just hearing me, but you're asking yourself, is this me? Am I obedient to this? Am I faithfully living out what Jesus says a true Christian is? A true disciple publicly confesses Christ as Lord. Notice with me verse 32. Therefore, Jesus says, Whoever confesses me before men, him I will also confess before my Father who is in heaven. Verse 33, But whoever denies me before men, him I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Here, this is a hard saying, a truthful saying. A blunt statement by Jesus where there is a reciprocation at play. Jesus has already told us that he's here to divide. And we'll see in just a moment. Part of his work is a dividing work. In Matthew's gospel, he's already shown us that he comes to divide the, the wheat from the tares. He comes to divide those who say one thing, but in reality, they are another thing. He, he comes in Matthew chapter 7, verse 13, we saw that he, the false disciples go through the wide gate, but true disciples go through the narrow gate. Jesus comes to make a distinction between false professors and true professors. And here we see an application of what that looks like. There's a reciprocation at play. Verse 32, whoever confesses me before men, him I will also confess before my Father who is in heaven. To be a disciple of Jesus is to be loyal to Jesus. 
To be a disciple of Jesus means you're not ashamed of his gospel. You're not ashamed of his word. Just by way of exhortation, there's an element where this could point us to by way of application of, of the meaning of public baptism, doesn't it? What, what is public baptism before the saints of God? It's a, it's a picture, isn't it? It's a declaration that says, I have professed faith in Christ, and I'm not afraid to publicly identify myself with the body of Christ. You say, LeGrand, why'd you bring that up? Well, number one, it's a practical application. But in my very limited pastoral ministry, I have found that there are plenty of people sitting in the church pews who say one thing but are doing another. Baptism doesn't save. Baptism is not salvific. But baptism is a declaration. Baptism is a sign that says this, I love Christ. Christ is my Savior and my Lord. And I am unashamed to declare his name. I am unashamed to identify myself with the people of God just like his word teaches and commands of me. So may the Lord help us this morning. I want to ask you this question instead of being theoretical. Have you followed the Lord in obedience to his command? Not only in professing his name, but have you followed him in obedience in believers' baptism? There's a reciprocation at play here where Jesus says, if you refuse to confess me before your family, before your friends, before your co-workers, in your neighborhood as you live life, do, going to ball games, going to neighborhood council meetings, going to lunch appointments. If somehow this profession that you say you have has no boots on the ground, there's a problem. There's a problem. What's so interesting is that when we come to faith in Christ, think about your own life. There's probably no other time where we're more energized, more enthusiastic about the gospel, more filled with joy about what Jesus has done, more empowered and bold and faithful to go speak his name to the lost and to those that we love than when we're first saved. Amen? When we're first born again. At least that was my experience, and I'm sure that's your experience. You're not ashamed to tell. And then your thought goes, well, who else needs to hear this message? We're bold. We, think, we act first and we think later. There's good things about that and there's bad things about that. But something happens over time, doesn't it? What happens? That enthusiasm, if it's not cultivated and stirred and we're reminded of the power of it and the meaning of it and the reality behind it, begins to wane. It begins to lessen. And the sad reality is, is for some of you, if you got excited about the gospel, if you got excited about someone coming to faith in Christ, that would be a very unusual thing. But it would not be unusual for you to get pumped up about your team winning or your team losing. Let me put it another way. Maybe you express more emotion over a game than you do about the eternal souls of men. Here's the point. May the best days of our confessing Christ and living faithfully to the cause of Christ not be in the past when we first experience the new birth, but may they continue to be cultivated as we confess his name, not just then, but now. May our best days not be in the past, but we're continually, faithfully professing, confessing the name of Christ where he's placed us in and here and now. We're loyal to him. Now notice here in verse 33, there's not only a reciprocation at play, but there is a retribution at play. And this is a hard truth that Jesus gives. Verse 33, whoever 
denies me before men, him I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Hear me, friends, and hear me clear this morning. There is no such thing as a secret disciple. There is no such thing as a closet Christian. There is no such thing as a secret discipleship where it's me and my privatized faith with Jesus and the security that gives and the eternal hope that I I realize, and yet I keep it to myself. I want you to know something. There's a lot at play in our world today, but the biggest shame that is at play in our world today is simply this, that God's sheep, the sheep of God, the flock of God, limit their faith to the fold, if you will. It's, it's, it's secret. It's, it's, to, it's to put to the margins. Here, let me say it a different way. Your neighbors, your coworkers, your family are completely okay with you doing what you're doing here this morning. Nobody has a problem with it. No one has a problem with your worship of the Lord, at least not right now in our land. But here's why. It's in these four walls. They have no problem with you going out and following your routines and your patterns as we are this morning. Where the problem lies and when it leaves these four walls. And you take your faith not just in the private closet or the secret place, although there's a place for that, But when you begin to bring your faith into the public square, into the marketplace of ideas, that's where the rubber meets the road. And that's where you're going to get pushback. And that's where you're going to get all types of reactions. And so you have to be, as Jesus says, wise as a serpent, harmless as a dove. But one thing you can't be is silent. One thing you can't be is a secret follower. One thing you can't be is a closet Christian. And if you are, then hear the word of Christ this morning, verse 33. Whoever denies me before men, him I also will deny before the Father who is in heaven. So friends, just bow to scripture this morning and ask your heart, am I quiet when I should speak? Am I faithful to the message of Christ when opportunity arises? Or does the fear of man clamp my mouth? Interestingly enough, we'll often hear politicians, when they're asked a specific question about their faith, they'll say something like this, my faith is a private matter. Well, that certainly is something Jesus never said. But here's the problem, is we say the same thing as well. And even if we don't say it, we do it. Our actions speak for us. Turn very quickly with me to, just very by way of illustration, Revelation 21, verse 8. Revelation chapter 21, verse 8, and I want to nail a point home here as we think about At the root of this is Jesus calling out his disciples to fear him more than we fear them. Again, going back to the principle of the fear of God removes all lesser fears. So at the root here is a theme of cowardice, a theme of being afraid. Turn with me first to Revelation chapter 2, and then we'll go to Revelation 21 verse 8. But choose this day whom we will serve. Fear him who has power over body and soul. Get your eyes fixed upon the one to whom you will give an account. And all of a sudden, whoever it is you fear will lose their grip on you. God will provide for you. If you're afraid of losing your job or 
some type of security that you have that, that will go away. Well, listen, without, without faith, you cannot please him. You honor God, he will honor you. Revelation 21, or excuse me, verse chapter, chapter 2 first, look with me at verse 4, what Jesus has ought against the church. He's going through the different churches, the church at Ephesus. It's his focus here in this context. But in verse 4 of Revelation chapter 2, he says this, Nevertheless, I have this aim against you. I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Now notice what he says. He says, remember, verse 5, Therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Also in this context, Jesus says, listen, I cannot stand lukewarmness. You've left your first love. And friends, as we make application this morning as being a faithful public witness of Christ as we're sent forth in his name, repent this morning if you find in your heart that you have abandoned your first love. So the answer here is if there is a greater fear, then you have left your first love. If you have a greater fear of losing your job or losing a friendship or losing whatever you fill in the blank, the answer here of why that is, is you've left your first love. You're ashamed of Christ. Now go with me, Revelation 21, verse 8, just a few pages over. And I want to show you the seriousness of not, not only what Jesus is saying, but how the whole of Scripture takes this into account. Revelation 21, verse 8, here in this text, this context, verse 7, we'll, we'll give the context, verse 7, He who overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. So notice the relationship here is invoked. This is a father-son relationship or a father-child relationship. But verse 8, but the cowardly, the unbelieving, the abominable, the murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Now notice how Jesus groups in this statement, not what Paul is saying is, and such were some of you. Like in other words, you've been saved out of these things, and, and you've been changed by the grace of God. But no, this is your path. You've never been changed, and now you're at the point of judgment. At the front of this particular list, grouped with what we would say is the more heinous of sins, is, is what? Look, look there in the text with me. Those who are cowards, cowardly. We minimize, going back now to Matthew chapter 10, we minimize the fear of man. We minimize being a coward, but Jesus doesn't minimize this sin. And this is the root of what Jesus is saying. A true disciple confesses his Lord publicly. And Jesus says, if you do not own me, before your parents, before your family, before your relationships, and you deny me, then I'll deny you. How sobering this is, friends, as we remember and think upon the, the regular moments God gives us an opportunity to speak for him. And I will say this, if this is the continual fruit of our life, then we possibly, according to what Jesus is saying, are not saved. If every time the opportunity comes, we cave to fear of men, fear of boss, fear of others, 
We, we, get, we give the example of Peter, of course, who had a moment to speak for Christ. And he fell, just like Jesus prophesied. He, he wilted. He denied the Lord three times. That was an occasion. But it was not the aim and flow of his life. Peter manifested the fruit of a godly man. And what is that? It's repentance. He wept bitterly. He returned again to the Lord. He owned his sin. And Peter was empowered to boldly live for Christ, shepherd the church, preach the gospel, and God used him mightily. And friends, he can use you as well as we've seen in recent studies. But if we continue to cave, when God gives us ample opportunity to live, to shine for him, then all we're doing is manifesting the fact that we are not regenerate. So may the Lord help us. Have you confessed Christ as your Lord? Wonderful. Do you confess him, key word here, publicly? Do you confess him publicly? Or are you ashamed of the Lord? Secondly, as we move quickly in verses 34 through 37, again, as Jesus is unfolding what true discipleship is, a true disciple responds to Christ's call of, notice here, both salvation and sanctification and forsakes his family. I'm going to try to break that down. I know that's a long heading. But a true disciple forsakes family. Now, let's break that down. And there's a realm of what we want to look at here for a few moments in both salvation and also in sanctification. Look with me there in verse 34. Do not think, Jesus says, that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Some of you are sitting there thinking, well, what about the son-in-laws? Listen, you have to take, take that up with Christ in the, in the day of judgment. I have no idea. This is just simply what he says. Verse 36, and a man's enemies will be those of his own household. Now, Jesus has already prophesied this, hasn't he? He's already told his disciples, going back just a few verses, that, that in the, in those who will betray the disciples will be not only in the governmental realm, not only in the civil realm, but also in the family relationships. And if you cannot withstand that test, then you're not his disciple. That's what he says. Verse 37, he who loves father and mother more than me is not worthy of me. He who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. So just to recap, Jesus has already given us key instruction on this. We're not going to go back into previous verses of Matthew's gospel but the two would-be disciples, do you remember who came to Jesus in Matthew chapter 7 and said, Lord, we desire to follow you wherever you go. And one of them could not because his dad wasn't buried yet. And we understood that context was, I, I want to get secure in life. I want to be established. I want to receive the inheritance of my family that is due me. And then, once I feel the security financially, then I'll follow you. And there are people who think like that today. One of these days, one of these days when I retire... I'm going to serve Jesus. Well, listen, friend, if you're not serving him today, I highly doubt you'll be serving him then. Don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not trying to pick on anybody and say you have a noble desire to serve the Lord in a different way in retirement. Wonderful and good. Just make sure you're living for him right now. Make sure you're unashamedly, unabashedly his disciple right now where he has called you and where he has placed you. And so one of those would-be disciples could not follow him because he wasn't secure yet. And Jesus says, you cannot be my disciple. You trust me. I am Lord. I gave you the parents who have the financial security that you think you're going to get one day. But the stock market may crash before then, and you may have nothing. You follow me. I'm the Lord of all. I will provide for you. I will give you everything 
you need. And if you're not willing to trust Jesus in that regard, you're not willing to be his disciple. Then we saw the man who came to Jesus, and what was his case? He desired more convenience as opposed to the risk of following Christ. There was family, the God of family, and there was a desire of convenience. And Jesus says, you're not prepared to be my disciple. Here we see a true disciple forsakes his family. Turn with me just very quickly to one cross-reference, and it's John 7, verse 43. And I want to nail home this point that Jesus, when he comes, his gospel divides. The very essence of his message is one of division. When you understand what the gospel is, it will divide, first of all, the sinner from his sin. But beyond that, it will divide everything, everyone, and everything apart from Christ, and Jesus never comes next. Jesus never comes second. You can't call him Lord, curios, bow to him as Lord and say, now just hold on a second, and then go over here and attend to other things, and then come back to him and say, all right, Lord, you're Lord now. No, you don't understand what Lord is. You can't call him Lord and put him second, and yet that's what many do, and then this is what Jesus would say right back to you. Are you prepared to follow me? And here he gives the illustration of family. So in John chapter 7, verse 43, I stopped to talk for a second. I didn't turn there myself, so give me just one second. John 7, in verse 43. Jesus says this, beginning in verse 40, the context is that men are being divided over Christ. And he says this, Therefore many from the crowd, when they heard this saying, said, Truly, this is a prophet. Others said, Truly, this is the Christ. But some said, will the Christ come out of Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the seed of David and from the town of Bethlehem where David was? So there was a division among the people because of Jesus. Now some of them wanted to take him, but no one laid hands on him. Well, one reason why that was is it wasn't his time. You see the providential work of God here guiding his son. But notice that phrase, so there was, verse 43, a division among the people because of him. Do you see the difference here in the modern popular Jesus and the Jesus of what we see in the scriptures? Listen, Jesus is not as concerned about being your friend, although he is the friend that sticks closer than a brother, as he is, he is your Lord and Savior, that you obey him and follow his gospel, follow his teaching. So there's two things I want us to consider here as we think about a true disciple abandons all other things. Here the context is family for the sake of Christ. The first application I want us to make is in the realm of salvation. Some of you listening to me this morning, as you heard the gospel message, you responded in faith and you were radically saved. As I sat with a man this week at lunch and he was telling me his story and he said, listen, when I came to faith in Christ, God changed me. He became my number one love. I pursued him, and everything changed. And ultimately, my, life, my wife walked out the door because of it. She liked the old me. She did not like the new me in Christ. And I had to pick between my wife or Christ. And I didn't want it to happen. I didn't choose divorce. It was not my goal. But she didn't like me. So I had to make a choice. And I said, I can't be anything different. Christ has saved me. So she left him. I know of another situation to where a man came to faith in Christ who was in a strong uh, religious tradition. And his wife sat him down and said, something's changed. You're having an affair, aren't you? He said, absolutely not. 
And what had happened was he had been afraid to tell her about his conversion to Christ away from, from works righteousness. And he just had not been open with her about it. But she could see there was a change in him. Something was different. And he said, I, I need to come clean and tell you, I'm a follower of Jesus and I'm resting in none of those things for my salvation or my security. And she threatened to leave him. And it's an ongoing trial for this man of being faithful to Christ and loving his spouse and not desiring for anything to change. And, and that's a little bit of what we're talking about here. The essence of spouse relationships, mother-father relationships, brother-sister relationships, in-law relationships, or in-grace relationships, if you will. This application can be made with the sense of when you follow Christ's call, and you know there's going to be a cost. If you do that, you're removed from your inheritance. If you go there and follow Christ's call to serve him there, then nothing. Or maybe it's more like this. If you go to that college because you believe God is leading you there, we'll pay for it if you go to this college because this is where we went. Does that ever sound familiar? You ever heard that kind of argument? I have. This is what, we, this is what the Smiths do. And if your name is Smith this morning, forgive me. If, this is what we do. Mama, Daddy, Daddy did it. Granddaddy did it. And Great Granddaddy, granddaddy did it. And you're about to break the tradition. But dad, God's called me. I could hear his call. I bow the knee to him, not only salvation, but I, he's calling me now to service. That's the next layer of application. For some, the division comes just simply in salvation. For many this morning, that's probably not going to be the case. We live in the Bible Belt. We live in the buckle of the Bible Belt where most people say, hey, good for you. That, that's great. But then in salvation, that's not the problem. In the realm of sanctification, Christ calls out to a particular service, a life dedication. And it's going to cost you something. He's going to be your first love. And because he is your first love, as much as you love mom and dad and wife and husband and brother and sister and daughter and son, you love them. They're a part of you. They're your DNA. But you love Christ more. This is a choice of who comes first. And Jesus is Lord. And because Jesus is Lord, he does not get what's left over. Jesus gets first place. And if you're a disciple of Jesus, he's first place. He comes to bring a sword. And sometimes for even you here this morning, there has been great cost that you've experienced and people don't understand it. And you know what? That's okay. It's not your job to explain everything to everybody. Your job is to hear the voice of Christ and to obey him. Grace Church this morning and visitors who are with us, have you forsaken all to follow Christ? Have you forsaken your sin? Have you followed him in faith and salvation? Have you turned from the things that you once loved that were heinous in his sight, the sins he died for? Have you turned from those things because you love him supremely and followed him in salvation? Have you forsaken your family if that has been the choice that you were forced to make because of the call of Christ? Well, that's what we see here. That's what Jesus says. And number three, very quickly, a true disciple lives his life as a sacrifice for Christ. A true disciple lives with abandon as a sacrifice for Christ. Look with me in verses 38 through 39. He who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who finds his life will lose it. But he who loses his life for my sake will find it. 
You can divide up the whole world into two groups of people this morning. Those who are finding their life. They're being them. The world says, you be you. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. You follow me. The world says, self-esteem, self-love, self-actualization, self, 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 self. That's the God, that's the God of this age. And Jesus says, no, no, there's only one word that Jesus puts before self in the Gospels, and it's this, deny. All the things that you're told and shepherded and encouraged to love and to pursue, number one, supremely. As I'm saying this, I get that. It sounds odd to you. You search the Scriptures. Jesus says, no. Deny that, and you follow me, and you will find your real fulfillment. You will find the very purpose for your existence. You will find why I have created you. A true disciple denies himself. Luke 9, 23, Jesus says, If any man who would come after me, they must take up their cross daily, moment by moment, hour by hour, second by second, resting in the finished work of Christ, following me is his Lord, his Curios, and his master. Friends, do you live for Christ? Well, how do we live for Christ? We live for Christ, like Paul describes in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, a living sacrifice. We live for Christ when we've died to self. Not pursuing as supreme in our life as a false god, Self-actualization, self-love, self-dreams, self all these things that we put, our world gives us a vernacular to, to put it into phraseology. But supremely, we deny what comes naturally. As Proverbs says, there is a way, a natural bent to man. There is a way that seems right, but the end of that way is death. To follow Christ, friends, is, is life. In conclusion this morning, what we find is that also in verses 40 and 42, a true disciple receives his eternal reward. A true disciple receives his eternal reward. And notice what the text says. He who receives you receives me. And he who receives me receives him who sent me. He who receives a prophet in the name of a prophet shall receive a prophet's reward. And he who receives a righteous man in the name of a righteous man shall receive a righteous man's reward. And whoever in the name of a disciple gives to one of these little ones even a cup of cold water to drink, truly I say to you, he will not lose his reward. Here what we find is Jesus touching on the realm of obedience and rewards that are the Father's to give. And I would just leave you with this final phrase, truly I say to you, he, she will not lose their reward. Friends, stay faithful to Christ as a true disciple. Look for your reward that only he can give, a reward that is in heaven, one that he will give in his due time. One of the beautiful things about God's kindness and his grace is that it's not all in the future. In his sweet kindness, we do receive tangible fruits of our labors and followership, even in the here and now, don't we? And it's sweet. It's wonderful. It is the gift of God's grace but I would tell you, as sweet as that is, so much sweeter will be to hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant. And to receive the reward that will never perish, yet we give right back to him again in offering and praise. No one wants to be the guy who comes to the birthday party without the present. And you look around and you see that everybody else has, has done their part and they've come prepared. Well, friend, listen, you will be prepared. 
if you are faithful to Christ, we may not look like much down here on earth, but on up ahead, there are eternal treasures that we will be able to offer up unto our Lord, which simply reflect our love for him. And Jesus says, even the simplest tasks of reverence and service, even the simplest, most mundane things like offering a cup to one of these little kids will not lose, they will not lose their reward in heaven. What this tells us is, as Paul emphasizes in 1 Corinthians 10.31, whether therefore you eat or, or drink or whatever you do, do it as an act of living sacrifice to the Lord, as unto the Lord. And when you live your life that way, faithful to his command, faithful to his commission, faithful to his call, you are storing up treasures in heaven that, raw, that the stock market cannot touch, that, that, that no matter who's in office can touch. They're appreciating for the greater glory of God. Moth and rust and insects cannot touch them, Jesus says in Matthew 6. For many, though, they're living for the reward that is in the here and now. And Jesus says that is the essence of Phariseeism. That is the essence of legalism. That is the essence of man-centeredness, to do things simply for the eyes of men. But when you do what you do, as unto me, as a disciple, you will receive your true reward. You will not lose your reward. Well, Grace, in conclusion, as we round out this text for this morning's purposes, there's a prayer of application that I want us to seek after and I want us to embody in our hearts. And the first one is this. Our prayer, mine for you and you for me and us for each other is this, is that we will get an accurate, true vision of who God is. And I, notice how I say that, get. It's not to say we've never had it. But listen, it's one that we have to maintain. We need new mercies every day, don't we? Isaiah and Isaiah chapter 6 that we saw this morning, Isaiah needed a refreshed vision of who Yahweh was. And Isaiah did not have the desire to serve in the way that he went to serve when Jehovah said, who will go for us? He said, here, pick me, pick me, pick me. Now, 10 minutes before then, he probably wasn't as apt to say that, was he? What changed? What changed was a glorious vision of who God is, reigning in holiness on his throne. And friends, I'm afraid some of us have gotten away from that. We need to be jolted. We need, we need to, the spiritual jump starter here to jolt us into who our God is and to behold who he is so that we're not afraid of men. We're saying, oh God, give me a, a passion for you. Your steadfast love is better than life. And anything that I'm working for today or going to experience this week in fellowship with friends and the holidays, those things are great. But all of that simply points to how great you are. Father, give me a vision of who you are and tomorrow morning when I come back to this secret place, I'm going to need it again. Father, remind me, jolt me. So grace, may we pray for one another that God would give us a vision, a big vision of God, and one that is reflected in our discipleship. Not being afraid to speak of his name, not being afraid of living for him, and one that as we live and serve together, we live a sanctifying life that says, welcome, how can I serve you? How can I pray for you? Because in essence, that's what a disciple is. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to seek and save that which is lost. Well, may we see that in our life. Secondly, may the Lord continue to give us a supernatural awareness of the lost all around us. When we have lockjaw, we, we are not giving the life-saving message that our culture, that our family, that those, our friends, and our coworkers, that they need 
May the Lord continue to give us an awareness of the lost as he sees them as sheep having, without having a shepherd. Then lastly, number three, just a prayer of application. May the Lord continue to give Grace Church particularly a sacrificial obedience to the commission of Christ. May the Lord continue to give to Grace Church a sacrificial obedience as we are as his disciples to the commission of Christ. And that means local implications and global implications. Local evangelism and global missions. That, that's the main thing. We give God great glory as we stay to the task. We don't forget why he's left us here. A glorious vision of who he is. A love for the lost. And then a commitment to the gospel of evangelism in the global missions mandate that he has given to us. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for your, your strength today, your grace to help me, Lord, preach this message and for your people, clarity of thinking. And I just pray, Lord, that you will drive this message home to our hearts as you would have for us to hear. This has been a familiar passage as we've heard echoes of these themes in your teaching, but Lord, you have it for us again, even in the here and now. And so, Father, we commit ourselves to you afresh and anew this morning asking, Lord, that you would give us a glorious, fresh, day-by-day understanding of who you are. And Father, that comes through your word. Would you help us be faithful and committed to the scriptures as you reveal yourself to us? Father, would you help us to love one another and serve one another as the body of Christ and be committed to reaching the lost? And then also, Lord, not abandoning our focus, Lord, to see your kingdom advance through the advance of the gospel, both here in Roan County, but also across the globe in the form of missions. Father, that's what Paul was writing about in our passage of 1 Corinthians 16 that we read a few moments ago. On the first day of the week, regularly be setting aside money for the advance of the gospel. Father, that's our joy, and that's our privilege to do that. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.